try to wrap up some of the thoughts we've been sharing throughout this weekend about parents and teens and how the church can be involved in reaching young people. And so I'm just going to share a few more things with you this afternoon before we close it up. There's so much more that could be said. <laughs> we've, we've really only scratched the surface, and I think a lot of what I've done in the services and sessions is to bring up more questions that have to be answered, I know. But that's part of the process. And uh, a lot of the stuff we've talked about has been somewhat discouraging, all the problems that teens are facing and the fact that they're leaving. I know that that's not good news, but something we have to be aware of so we can respond to it properly. But I just want to talk really, really practically for a few minutes about what we call the discipleship partnership, which is the idea that in order for us to be most effective in reaching and discipling young people, it's going to be a team effort. Uh, and it's going to involve the family, and it's going to involve the church and the youth ministry all together. I think it's important for us to, to talk about that and show you a few places in Scripture that reinforce that truth. Unfortunately, there has been a lot of negativity focused toward youth ministry in the last several years. Um, in fact, when, when I teach about youth ministry, when I share with students who are going into the field of youth ministry, the first lecture we have to have is basically defending youth ministry in the first place. Because there are those who say youth ministry should be jettisoned. You know, it's not working or it's not biblical. Among the, the most common objections are youth ministry is not in the Bible. That's what I get told frequently. Youth ministry is not in the Bible. It's like, well, th those words are not in the Bible. You're right. But neither is Sunday school. Neither is bus ministry. There's a lot of things we do at church that we understand are ways God uses the church to reach people in different phases of life. Uh, so youth ministry is not in the Bible, or they'll say youth ministry is not biblical. Well, I have a list of passages that teach that there's supposed to be an emphasis on young people, and specifically how the older people can help younger people in the church. So that one doesn't hold water. Uh, then I've been told that adolescence is a modern invention, and so we shouldn't be indulging that. I talked about parents yesterday to a great degree on that issue. Adolescence, as we understand it, is a modern construct. But this is the, these are the kids that we're dealing with. Uh, we're not dealing with kids who understand what it was to not go to high school, but to become an adult immediately and to work on a farm and all that kind of stuff. That's not the generation we work with. Adolescence is the world they live in. We've got to understand it so we can address it. So that one, that's not going to stop me from ministering to young people. You can't just say, hey, we, teenagers are a modern invention, let's not deal with them. Well, what about diseases that were just discovered in the last few years? Do we not treat new diseases? Of course we do. So issues that come up just because they're new doesn't mean we ignore them. But one of the, the most uh, disturbing things that is being said and books are being written is that youth ministry is destructive to the family. That is something I've read quite a bit on in recent years. Uh, there are some really prominent leaders among um, Reformed theologians, especially those in the Calvinist, more Calvinist tradition. And uh, for what it's worth, I know we have a lot in this category here, and so this is not um, a slight at all, but a lot of literature in the homeschooling movement is anti-youth youth ministry. They, they believe it's destructive to the family. They say youth ministry is a dangerous movement that segregates teens from their families and from the church as a whole. And they propose that we replace youth ministry with family ministry in which all age groups are integrated rather than separated into age-graded classes. 
Those who write those particular books and articles also claim that youth ministry has usurped the role of the family in training children and set up church leaders like youth pastors and pastors as the spiritual leaders of the family rather than fathers. Now, we have to respond carefully to this objection because the underlying concern is legitimate. But it doesn't necessitate the eradication of youth ministry altogether. We have to recognize a few important things that God's plan for children is that they be trained in the ways of the Lord at home by their parents. That's the biblical mandate. And that principle is laid out in Deuteronomy 6. We'll look at it in just a moment. But effective youth ministry never seeks to replace parents or usurp the authority of the home, but rather to come alongside and encourage and support them in the training of their children. So the idea of family ministry, I understand it. And I, I encourage, like we did yesterday, events that bring families together so that they learn together and they uh, fellowship together and they serve the Lord together. And uh, services where children are in the service, I encourage as well. But they can't be in every service because they, can't, they just simply can't understand everything that, that's being preached because adults need to hear things on their level, kids need to hear things on their level, and teens need to hear things on their level. So I'm not against youth group and children's church and all those things. Um, I would be against it if it meant that there was never a time the whole church got to worship together. Family ministry would be a great concept also if all families were Christian families and all homes were Christian homes. But that's not the reality. Many families and homes are broken. The, ma the vast majority of children aren't being taught to love and serve God. And youth ministries have been used of God to reach young people from those unchurched homes who might have never been reached otherwise. In response to the second part of that objection, I think we should also note that youth ministries should never seek to isolate young people from the church or create a separate youth church, but like I said, integrate them into the life and ministries of the church. Now, I think we can all, we could all probably point to examples of youth ministry done poorly, but there's no evidence or argument so strong as to call for the eradication of youth ministry altogether. So I think some improvements can be made, but it, when all is said and done, I think teens need youth ministry. I think Churches need youth ministry, and I think families need youth ministry because youth ministry done properly can play a vital role in reaching these families for Christ, the ones that are unchurched especially, and youth pastors can also work alongside parents, encouraging them, offering support and training for parents who need it while reinforcing the priority of spiritual leadership in the home. A good youth ministry is going to always point them back to the priority of their family, encourage them to honor and, and respect their parents, to foster a good relationship between their parents. Sadly, I have seen those situations where youth leaders think too highly of themselves and try to drive themselves as a wedge between kids and their parents. That's dangerous. I don't support that. But by and large, that's not what's happening. And so I think it would be dangerous for us to say, because there have been some examples of youth ministry done poorly, we should get rid of it altogether. But rather, I think we should see how youth ministry can come alongside the family and actually be a help. So if we look at what the scriptures teach, we will find, first of all, the institution and the priority of the family. God ordained three distinct institutions. You can study scripture and find this to be true. First was the family in Genesis chapter 2. He established the family, a husband and a wife and any children that God blesses them with. God established that institution first. Then God established government, 
which, as we understand it, begins in Genesis chapter 9 with that first major statute about, not, about man not shedding man's blood because he's made in the image of God. That was the beginning of civil government. Much more followed that. Romans 13 teaches us that God sanctions and is the one responsible for human government. And then the third institution is the church. That's the order in which they were instituted. The church, of course, is God's vehicle for reaching the world in this particular age in which we live. Now, of those three institutions, I, I think you can see Satan attacks all of them <laughs> vehemently because he understands them as pillars of, of society. Obviously, the family is under attack today. Its very definition, its basis, its makeup, its function. The government is under attack and infiltrated by Satan, and the church is under attack by Satan as well. So God gave these three institutions, but when we think about the institution of the family, God gave to them the responsibility of training their children in the ways of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is the passage I mentioned. They call it the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear. And because it starts in verse 3 with that, uh, hear therefore, and then again in verse 4, hear, O Israel, then Jews to this day call this passage the Shema. And they all know it. They've all memorized it. And they've taken it literally so much so that they literally have tiny scrolls of it rolled up and put in boxes that they wear on their heads. Because this passage says to keep it between your eyes. And so traditional... Jewish people back in Bible times and then some to this day have a little box with the, with the scripture in it that they wear on their heads. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. I don't miss that it says first before it says any of those other things. It shall be in thine heart. Having the word of God on your head and, and in your head is one thing. Having it around your house is one thing. Having it in your heart is another. This, these words, this truth about who God is and what he expects of us, it first must be in our hearts. Verse 7, And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. So the word of God should surround families. It should be visible, I think. So I think there is precedent for having the word of God in places that it can be seen in our house to be reminded of those things. But it's also supposed to be part of everyday conversation. That's the way that it's going to be most influential. Are there going to be specific times that we take them aside and deal with them from the Bible about a, a specific issue? Yes. But our homes should be places where the Bible is always infused into our conversations. Not artificially, but naturally. So that, they, so that it's evident to the outside world that this is not just something we segment as our, the religious part of our life or the thing we do on Sunday, but that this is a home where the Bible is taught and lived, and so it's in our conversations, it's in the way we make decisions, it's evident. So it says that it's supposed to be taught to the children, and then it says, verse 10, 
And it shall be, when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him, and thou shalt swear by his name. He shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people which are round about you. So he's telling them, here's the major reason we need to be passing this on, because when you get into the land, they were right on the precipice of going in at this point. When you get into the land, and you build your houses, and you have your homes, and you're not fighting enemies actively anymore, it's easy to forget what God has done for you. It's easy to forget the battles that have been fought and won. It's easy to forget the truth that sustained you in those difficult times. And it's just as easy in our lives to, uh, when everything is going fine, to forget God and to forget what he's done for us. And especially from one generation to the next. If we're not telling them what God has done for us, then that's how we stop talking about him at all. The passage would go on if we were to read the rest of it, talk about when your son asks you about this. You can tell him. There, it needs to be a part of your, your normal conversations. They, they need to understand what, who God is and what he's done. You should talk to them about it. So the priority, the institution God established first is the family, and they have been entrusted with the incredible responsibility of training their children in the ways of the Lord. And as churches, we understand the importance of the family. We recognize that obligation has been given to the parents, and we do not seek to overtake that responsibility. So that's number one. That's the importance, the institution rather, the priority of the family. Second is the importance of a community of faith. We certainly don't believe that God intended for parents to have to go it alone, because it's a, it's a huge task. And there is value in a community of faith that reinforces the things taught at home. And we can see a clear precedent for this even in the Old Testament context in which these original commands were given. Look, uh, look at Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is a psalm of Asaph. He was a, a Levite, someone who was in charge of the services of the temple. He was a musician, and he wrote a number of, of psalms here in this section of the book of Psalms. Very, very, very interesting psalms. All of them are. The ones that Asaph wrote, his testimony is very, very interesting. But this is an example of a historical psalm, which means it takes um, a, an event or a period of history, and then it... Uh, uses that as an example to teach a spiritual truth. So here's what Asaph says. Give ear, all my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we've heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. So th He is talking about Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is what God said to do. Remember? Verse 6. 
that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. So there's the reasoning again. We want the next generation to know them so that they can know the things that God has taught so that they can obey them. Verse 8, and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose, whose spirit was not steadfast with God. It goes on to describe a lot of the events from their time in the wilderness, basically as an example of people who knew better but disobeyed God anyway. And how they, he goes so far as to say they limited the Holy One of Israel, meaning no one can limit God's power, but what we can do is limit the expression of his power because he works through us, and if we don't listen to him, he can't work through us. So what he's saying is the point that was made in Deuteronomy 6 was to prevent all that kind of nonsense from happening again. The, the first generation that was supposed to get into the land didn't, Remember? Because when they made it to the border of the land and sent in the spies, they decided that they couldn't take the land. And so they complained and turned their back on God, and he ordered that they wander until that generation died entirely. And then their children got to go in. And so these, were, these commandments were given, Deuteronomy 6 was given to say, listen, teach your children the truth of God's law so that they don't have to make the same mistakes the previous generation made the entire community of the people of Israel were to be involved in passing on the things that they knew, the things that they had learned, making sure the next generation didn't repeat the mistakes the previous generation had made. But if we move into the New Testament context, and the context of the church in particular, Titus chapter 2 is our great example there, because if you read Titus chapter 2, it talks about how the older men are supposed to teach the younger men and it lists specific things they're supposed to teach. And the older women are supposed to teach the younger women specific things. This is within the context of the church. We talked in this morning's service about the unfortunate divide between generations when really God intends for them to be working together, and God actually intends the younger people to look up to the older people for the wisdom and experience they have, and the older people are supposed to look to the younger people, see the potential, see the value, and mentor them and train them so that they don't repeat the same mistakes. So we're not dealing with the exact same situation where we had a generation who wandered in the wilderness, but we, do, we are people who have our own stories, who have our own examples, who have our own triumphs and troubles, and we can use those to, to help and encourage the upcoming generation. So this is a, what we're calling a discipleship partnership. Understanding that God has given the responsibility of reaching and raising and discipling kids to the home, to the parents. But that doesn't mean no one else is allowed to get involved. The church and the youth ministry of the church is meant to come alongside and to help. That's what we were trying to reinforce yesterday with that parent-teen event that we had. That we are in this together. That... We love your kids just like you love your kids, and we want them to succeed. And in order for us to do that, we have to be on the same page about our goals for them. Uh, and that's why I tried to lay out some goals from 1 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. we got to have the same goals for our young people, what we want them to become. And then we partner together in seeing that become a reality. I know 
that I, I need the help of other believers in investing in the lives of my girls. I have a now nine-year-old and a soon-to-be five-year-old girl. And Sherry and I are taking the responsibility of, uh, of teaching and training them. It's a huge responsibility, though. And we have already benefited so much from other older parents and parents who've had kids longer than we have who've helped us. People we call and ask questions. My own parents, her parents. That we, we need help. And I want us to see our investment in, in young people as, an, as a partnership. We want to help train your kids, but we also want to be there to encourage and help you. And God has called me and called our ministry specifically to be students of youth culture, to understand the trends, and to raise alarms about those trends. Because I know not every parent can or has the time or resources to know all that stuff. So I want you to see us as a resource. Uh, here are things that are alarming we should all know about and deal with. And when we have questions, we should come to one another. This is what I'm struggling with. What have you seen? How's it, how, how have you worked through this? That sort of thing. This is a partnership. And even, even secular uh, people have begun to see the truth of the statement that the most successful people are young people who were invested in by multiple adults outside of their own parents. Because there is power in when parents teach their kids something and then they see, they, they see that or hear that again from other adults. Because you, you understand as well as I do, and teenagers, you know this is true. There is a natural resistance to what your parents say is right or true or what they recommend as to the way you should live or do any, any number of things. <laughs> when mom and dad say it, you automatically take it, unfortunately, with a grain of salt. You're like, Ugh. that's what mom and dad say. But So imagine if in this community of faith, there are other adults who are on the same page and have the same goals and love your kids like you do, and, and they speak those same truths into their lives and reinforce by their own example that those things are true. And then they'll start to see. It's not just mom and dad being mom and dad. It's true, and it's right. It, it is a, it's a powerful effect. So I have made it my life's goal to, to mentor and to help pour into the lives of as many young people as I get the chance to do. Uh, people did that for me when I was young, and I've never forgotten it. And so I take every opportunity. And the, the first chance I got. And so I, I found Zach. I grabbed Zach, or he found me, or I don't know how, what, what the real story will be in the end. But the Lord orchestrated that situation where when Zach was in high school, I was able to come alongside and help and walk him through some difficult parts of his life and invest in his life. Even though he has Christian parents, even though he's from a Christian home, our kids are not immune to those struggles. They're not immune to those issues. And I saw the power of that kind of investment. And at that point, I was like, okay, anyone else who needs help, I'm going to try to help. But I can't help everyone. I'm only one person. And my wife and kids do like me to be at home sometimes. So I'm calling on Crossroads Baptist Church. Yes, if you have teenagers, your responsibility is to parent them but let's help each other.
let's partner together in doing this. And um, I know I'm not technically a member of Crossroads Baptist Church, but I feel like I belong here. And I <laughs> don't tell anyone, but I'm here more than I'm at my, my church, technically. Um, and I love the family atmosphere that there is here. And I think, it's, I think it's an example. But I want it to get even tighter and even closer. And I want us to see one another as partners in this awesome experience of investing in each other's kids and families. And the, the growth of the church is one thing, but the health of our homes and families is another. And healthy homes make healthy churches. And uh, the unity will just be that much stronger if we see it that way. So it's a partnership. And what we do with your kids in youth ministry and youth group and activities is never, ever, ever to counteract or undermine anything you do with your kids. It is to reinforce, undergird. We are always trying to draw them closer to you, most importantly, closer to the Lord. So that's my charge. Discipleship, partnership. God's given parents the responsibility, but churches get to help. So if you need help, get help. And uh, we, I want to be a resource for you. I, don't, I, I told them yesterday, I don't parent any teens currently. I parent a nine-year-old and an almost five-year-old. But I do feel like in my lifetime I have parented a lot of teens. <laughs> and I take great delight in it. And I have studied teens and I have ministered to teens for 15 years. Um, so I don't know everything. I know a fraction of what there is to know. But if I know something you don't, I'm happy to help. And uh, so please see me as a, as a resource, but as someone who wants to help. I love the young people here at this church. I think they know that. If not, then they haven't been paying attention. But uh, Zach and I love them. Justin and Alyssa, we love them. And we want to help. So let's all work together. And let's be determined that the young people we have influence in their lives will not become like the statistics we've sadly had to report the last few days. Because we can turn that tide, and it can start here. All right? Lord, we thank you for this church and for these wonderful families. Thank you for the time we've been able to spend with a, a very specific focus on how we can better um, serve you as families, how we can better strengthen the unity of our churches and do more for you in the process. So help us all to consider our, our very specific place in all of this. I pray for these young people, that you would help them as they navigate this tumultuous part of their life. May they be cognizant always of the fact that there are many people around them who love them and want to help them. And Lord, I pray that that would definitely be true in the hearts of all the adults you've brought here in this church. And help us all to be looking for ways we can do more than we've ever done before. Because Satan is certainly doing more than he's ever done before to get our young people. So help us to meet that force with your help and your strength and the resources you've entrusted to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.